You know how some people have an emotional support dog and or a, a disability dog or whatever, you know, it's, it's more common here than where Becky and I lived before in Montana because here people often just take them into even restaurants and places like that. And I'm really a dog person, so I'm up for that. And yet it's kind of like, well, sometimes it gets to be too much, right? But I came to the realization this morning because my dog was just wanting to be like right in my face after she went outside and I told Becky, I said, you know what? I'm an emotional support human, actually, <laughs> for my dog. Like, I, I came to the realization of that this morning. Uh, so, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, she just, she just totally in my face. So um, we're going to look. Here's a picture of, um, it, you know, back in the Byzantine era, they did pictures like this. And I don't know where this is from, but there's some beautiful artwork from centuries ago of events of Jesus. And they thought very differently than we do. But we're going to look at the raising of, of Lazarus, and the fact that it leads to plans to kill Jesus in John chapter 11. And this morning I want to read to you from John 11, starting in verse 38. It's, it overlaps with last week, but I'm going to read to you this morning from the Passion Translation, and it shouldn't be too much different from whatever you might have in your hand, but you can follow along with me here. So what happened was Lazarus has died and Jesus is going to raise him. So in verse 38, I'm going to read to the end of the chapter and a couple verses in chapter 12. And this really kicks into the Easter season. And this past Wednesday, I think it was, was the beginning of 40 days leading up to Easter. And so we're right in a perfect timing in the Gospel of John to prepare for Easter. Then Jesus, with intense emotions, came to the tomb, a cave with a stone placed over its entrance. Jesus told them, roll away the stone. Then Martha said, this is Lazarus' sister, he's dead, but she's the sister. Martha said, but Lord, it's been four days since he died. By now his body is already decomposing. Jesus looked at her and said, didn't I tell you that if you will believe in me, you will see God unveil his power? So they rolled away the heavy stone. Jesus gazed into heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard my prayer. For you listen to every word I speak now so that these who stand here with me will believe that you have sent me to the earth as your messenger. I will use the power you have given me. Then with a loud voice, Jesus shouted with authority, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Then in front of everyone, Lazarus, who had died four days earlier, slowly hobbled out. He still had grave clothes tightly wrapped around his hands and feet and covering his face. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him loose. From that day forward, many of those who had come to visit Mary, that's the other sister, believed in him, for they had seen with their own eyes this amazing miracle. So what happened was people had gathered, the community had gathered for a funeral, and what they got instead was a resurrection. But a few went back to inform the Pharisees about what Jesus had done. <laughs> Can you imagine what that was like? They're snitching on Jesus. 
So the Pharisees and the chief priests called a special meeting of the high council. This is the Jewish Senate or the Sanhedrin. Seventy leaders of Israel. Uh, on that council, we know, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And you had the high priest and others. Uh, so the Pharisees said, So what are we going to do about this man? Look at all the great miracles he's performing. If we allow him to continue like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will take action and destroy both our country and our people. Now Caiaphas, the high priest that year, spoke up and said, You don't understand a thing. Don't you realize we'd be much better off if this one man were to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish? This prophecy that Jesus was destined to die for the Jewish people didn't come from Caiaphas himself, but he was moved by God to prophesy as the chief priest. And Jesus' death would not be for the Jewish people only, but to gather together God's children scattered around the world and to unite them as one. So from that day on, they were committed to killing Jesus. For this reason, Jesus no longer went out in public among the Jews, but he went in the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he secluded himself with his disciples. Now the time came for the Passover preparations, and many from the countryside went to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the feast began. Passover is the week that we call Easter, Holy Week. But on the Jewish calendar, it's Passover, which celebrated the angel of death passing over because they'd taken the lamb, lamb's blood. This was all through Moses, but commanded by God. They put it on their doors, and everyone that had blood over the door, blood of a lamb, the angel of death passed over that home, but in the home of every Egyptian that did not have that blood over the doorpost, the firstborn died, even the firstborn of Pharaoh. So that's back in Exodus. That's Passover. And all the people kept looking out for Jesus, expecting him to come to the city. They said to themselves while they waited in the temple courts, do you think that he will dare come to the feast? For the leading priests and the Pharisees had given orders that they be informed immediately if anyone saw Jesus so they could seize and arrest him. So what's happened here is that the straw that broke the camel's back with the miracles of Jesus was the resurrection of Lazarus. They don't dispute that it happened because they had the man walking around on two feet, ten toes, and with one voice telling people, yes, Jesus raised me from the dead. I wonder if we could transport ourselves back through time and space to that time and ask Lazarus what kind of questions we would ask him. I would say, Lazarus, do you remember anything between dying and being raised again? I would ask him, you know, what was this like? Uh, and but it happened, okay? And they couldn't refute it. So a few verses later in chapter 12, we learn this. In chapter 12 of John, when the word got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came out to see him. And they also wanted to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. This prompted the chief priests to seal their plans to do away with both Jesus and Lazarus. 
for his miracle testimony was incontrovertible and was persuading many of the Jews living in Jerusalem to believe in Jesus. So they were out of control and they figured that what would happen is that pandemonium would, would break out and all this, now keep in mind, all this from life. We get people who begin to engage in very fearful thinking over death, like coronavirus. And it's not a positive thing, but neither is it at this point like the Spanish flu of a, a century ago. We pray in Jesus' name that it doesn't become anything like that, right? And yet, this was pandemonium, not from a pandemic, but from a resurrection where somebody was restored to life. And, and Jesus prayed. He, he's all, I know. Like, he was securing his relationship with the Father, but he wanted everybody else to know that the Father listens to Jesus and that the Son has power because he is the resurrection and the life. He's just the friend that you want to have for anything. He can heal blindness, be, whether it's real physical blindness. He still heals today. We can pray for healing. Not everyone that ever encountered Jesus, I'm sure there were other people. And we know that there were, because in Acts chapter, uh, well, is it three? Anyhow, early in the book of Acts, you got the, the man begging at the beautiful gate. And he's healed by John and Peter, but that was his spot. And Jesus, we know from going back and forth at Passover and Feast of Tabernacles, he went by this man. And yet this man was not healed by Jesus, okay? Um, it's not a guarantee, the, the gospel, that everything will be made right in this life yet. But it is the guarantee that it will be made right in eternity. And he may totally heal us. He may turn our fortunes. But regardless, we've learned like Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, that I've learned what it is to be content in times of hunger as well as plenty. He says, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, Philippians 4.13. And what he was specifically talking about was the fact that he went through times of hunger and where he didn't have enough clothes and where he was in prison and where there was all kinds of difficult things that he went through and yet he counted it a joy. It's just something about circumstances that when we get between a rock and a hard place, Jesus shows up and he infuses us with power and grace and it's just like amazing because it's, it doesn't come from us. It comes from the fact that we are branches of the vine. And when you are connected to Jesus, the vine, and abide in him, then you get this wonderful life sap, okay? Uh, you are watered directly by the Spirit, and you, you have this sense. Have you ever had that before in your life, where you're just like, this makes no sense, because I am in such brokenness, in such weakness, in such sin, in such sorrow, in such grief, and yet God just empowers and he strengthens, and he undergirds, and he holds up, and he even gives us a song when we shouldn't have a song. In Nehemiah, it says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what the Lord does is he just he pokes it right into the dirt of our, our circumstances and plants that seed of joy 
that blossoms in our life and produces so many wonderful, beautiful things. And yet, those who don't understand the ways of the Lord, and in this instance, it was Caiaphas. Now, he had this word where he's like, no, 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 boys. Here's what we're going to do. Instead of the whole nation being, you know, in adverse circumstances, let's have one man die. And so they made up their mind, and yet it was inspired of the Holy Spirit because there was a meaning, there was a double meaning that he did not intend, but yet the Lord used the mouth of this man whose heart wasn't near to him, and yet he held the office of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the office of high priest, which was a very important office in Israel. And so it was a prophecy that, yes, one man will die for the nation, and not just for the nation of the Jews, but for people among every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity, that this, this one man, right? And so some people doubt this, and they're like, you know, and I went through a lot of doubts when I was younger in the faith too, and it's not like I don't have doubts about certain things, but at this point in my life, I'm like, you know, it's just insurmountable evidence toward the fact that not only was Jesus risen from the dead, but Lazarus as well, and, and that God really did uh, judge the world in the days of Noah, and God really did create human life, and the life of that possum, and <laughs> the raccoon, and the fox, okay? He created it all. And so you might have heard me say this before, but there was once a skeptic by the name of Edwin Rushworth, and he did not believe Christianity his entire life, but he resolved to read the Bible for an hour every day, even though he had criticized it over his lifetime. After his first reading, he looked up and told his wife, if this book is right, then we're wrong. He continued to read the Bible for another week, an hour every day. He exclaimed to his wife at the end of that week, if this book is right, we're lost. He went on reading with even more interest. He said to his wife a few nights later, if this book is right, we can be saved. And they were. The following uh, day, he followed Jesus and left all of his skepticism behind, and he trusted in him. And I don't know of anybody that's ever come to Jesus with honest faith, with, with honest, just like, I, I just want to serve you. I'm, I mean, some of the songs that we sang are songs of great humility and great brokenness, where that's all it takes to come to the Lord, is like you don't even have to believe everything in the Bible, okay? When you become a believer, you just need to trust in Jesus, he will do this amazing uh, work in your life to shape you, to form you, to give you grace. Now, what I said was just a little bit controversial, but it's, it's biblical, okay? Also in Philippians, Paul said this, uh, because he had a lot of struggles in his life, but he said this, uh, I've not obtained all this, and I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we've already attained. Paul wasn't upset with differences of opinion within the church. In fact, elsewhere in the book of Philippians, he says that there's other Christians who proclaim Christ there in, in um, where he's at, I think in Rome, but it happens in Philippi also. There's those who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. This is Philippians 1.17. Uh, thinking only to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul didn't get real uptight at the false motivations of other people. He said, hey, if Christ is being advanced, I'm all for it. The heart surrendered to grace. We, um, that's okay, <laughs> that's okay. But it was, <laughs> what kind of an alert was that? It was, it's like, pastor, it's time to finish up, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just kidding, it's okay. Um, there's a fog that can come against us. And the disciples of Jesus, the family, you know, Mary and Martha, they had this fog of grief and misunderstanding the goodness of God. And that can happen in the life of the believer. There can also be the fog of hatred like the, the opponents of Jesus had. Caiaphas, the high priest, and, you know, not the whole Jewish Senate hated Jesus, but many of them did. And they sent a man on their behalf to a city called Damascus to persecute the church. And yet Jesus got in the middle of that too and messed up that plan and won him over and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul, the apostle, couldn't kick against the goads anymore. Think about Lazarus being resurrected. Think about the fact that this gift of life, here's another early, you know, kind of like Byzantine era, I think, uh, painting of Jesus, where the gift of life with Lazarus over here turns the authorities against Jesus, where the person who has the power to give life needs to be killed, needs to be destroyed. I would call it Jesus derangement syndrome that the, the leaders of Israel in his day had. And the church has been, in the instruction of Jesus, Jesus told us to be as innocent as doves and yet as wise as serpents. Christians are not called to be childish, but childlike. We know that we have opponents. We know that we have enemies. And what I'm talking about is not you know, like somebody who, who snubbed you or cut you off in traffic. We're talking about the fact that Christians in Nigeria are having churches, church facilities burned to the ground and, and priests and pastors and women are being taken into sex slavery and children are by all kinds of Boko Haram and bad groups in Nigeria. Nigeria is a nation of over 100 million people. I think they're the most populous nation in Africa. Unlike Las Vegas, what happens in Nigeria doesn't just stay in Nigeria. And 
it, it, it impacts us because these brothers and sisters in the Lord are part of our family. And it happens in Syria where Christians have been pushed out because of the civil war that's going on there. And there's problems elsewhere in the world. These are our, all our family, okay? And this in the context of, of a culture in America that's becoming increasingly hostile and intolerant of people of faith. And we, we don't want to be alarmist, but we do want to, you know, keep it, keep it real. Keep it, we understand when we really have enemies. Does that make sense? So we pray for persecuted believers, whether they're persecuted with just outright hatred, secularism, uh, Islamic radicalism, uh, communism, socialism around the world. We want to pray for believers, whatever their circumstances are. Um, Here's the way that the news of the victory of Waterloo arrived in England. Some of you have heard this before. There were no telegrams or telephones in those days. But everyone knew that Wellington was facing Napoleon in a great battle. The future of England was in doubt. And sailing ships in that day signaled with flags news to the signalman on top of Winchester Cathedral. Did you guys see Winchester Cathedral by chance when you went to... To, it's in London, right? Does that make sense? This might be a different cathedral. Anyhow, they, they, Mike and Sandy had a trip to London recently. He signaled to, what happened though was the ship would signal to a, you know, a, a signal tower and the news was relayed of a battle or, or other things by signal from station to station until it made all its way to London and then went out all across the land of England. When the ship came in, it signaled the word Wellington. That was their general. The next word was defeated. The fog then came across, and the ship could not be seen. So the message, Wellington defeated, went across England, and there was great gloom all across the country. After two or three hours, the fog lifted. The signal came again, but this time the words were Wellington defeated the enemy. And all England rejoiced because they realized that the nation was secure. Napoleon had been defeated and all was well. This fact that not only Lazarus was risen from the dead and he went on to die another day, but even better than that is the news that Christ is risen. And the signal that we can get fogged up is that Christ has defeated our enemy. Sin and death and everything wrapped into it that twists the heart inward upon itself, as Martin Luther describes sin. And so he sets us free, just like he set Lazarus free. He let him loose to go forward and to be himself. So again, I want to share with you my favorite quote as we close this morning. Ned Erickson said this, Get to know Jesus well, because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to follow him. The more you'll become like him, and the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. Father, we thank you that for freedom's sake, you have set us free. 
and that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, and you are actually changing us from one degree of glory into another. Help us to realize that your power is without limit. And just as the first disciples were shocked by the power of this man who says he's the resurrection of life to actually bring someone back from the dead, it produced hatred among people whose entire lives were about controlling a religious system. But it brought grace to those who knew that Jesus was inviting them to a whole new life, a life no longer filled with pain and regret and sorrow and sin and discouragement, but filled with power, love, and self-control. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you work these things in our lives. And we just praise you. We honor you in the mighty name of Jesus. God bless you.